Well, we talk uh, in the world of Christianity, we often reference this idea of, of grace and mercy, right? Grace is getting something we don't deserve, and mercy is getting, not getting what we do deserve. Well, we also talk oftentimes, we use the words guilt and shame. Guilt and shame, there's a difference between the two of them. They're kind of in the same realm, but there's a difference. Uh, guilt tends to be more of the internal aspect that I have somehow failed, I've, I've done wrong, and there's a sense of personal grief uh, that's attached to that. Where, where shame, on the other hand, um, is kind of the external aspect of that personal guilt, uh, that, that uh, feeling of remorse that I've done wrong. But instead of me identifying that I haven't lived up to a certain standard with guilt, what shame does, it gets other people to tell you that, right? So, so guilt is, I have done something wrong and I understand that where shame is everybody else tells you that you've done something wrong. Um, and either way, you feel like a bad person with guilt and shame. Uh, and, and back in um, feudal Japan, they had this thing called seppuku. Now, back in feudal Japan, the, the samurai was the great warrior of the day. He was the knights of the Middle, uh, Middle Ages in Europe. So he, he, he was the, the thing to aspire to. And they were men of honor and dignity and they trained and they went out and they fought uh, for, their, for their feudal lords or their shoguns is what they called them. Well, seppuku was the idea of honorable death. So what might happen was if a samurai was about to be captured, uh, or perhaps he had done something that seemed to be an act of cowardice, or uh, he, he had dishonored people in some sort of way, he had a chance to reclaim his honor. And so he would engage in this ritual that was known as seppuku. And so essentially what he would do is he would take the traditional drink of sake, he would take a sip of that, and he would have what was called then a death poem that he would write. And then after he had his death poem and he read it, he would take a sword and he'd impale it into his stomach in a way that would cause death. And just in case anything didn't happen, usually there was another person standing behind with another sword just to make sure that if it didn't work, that that individual could take his life. Uh, and this was the only way for many of them to reclaim that sense of honor that they felt they had lost. Now eventually that falls out of practice, but one of the things that they found actually in World War II is that many Japanese officers engaged in this, especially a lot of the ones that were on the islands as the Americans were coming through, that feeling that they would have of shame knowing that if they were captured by the American soldiers that it was better for them and their families to take their own lives. Okay, so, so this isn't something that's necessarily unheard of anymore, um, but we often see that in Asian cultures, they, they tend to actually have a higher suicide rate. Uh, and the reason is because in, in an Asian culture like Japan, it's a collective society. Uh, and, and the idea of suicide is actually more morally permissible. They look at that and say, that's okay if that happens. See, in America, we're, we're much more individualistic, right? If my family does something wrong, I'm going to feel bad. I may feel a sense of embarrassment, but, but I don't carry around that weight, you know, that 
the same way that it would carry in, say, Japan, right? That if you did something wrong in Japan with your family, you know, you would be a disgrace, not just to you, but your whole family would be a disgrace. And that was a huge, huge burden that is laid on people in these kind of collective cultures. And so we don't just see that in the Asian cultures. We actually still see that in the Middle East today. There's this great sense of honor and shame. And we even see this in the Bible. And so as we work through the story of Joseph today, we need to understand this idea of honor and shame to really get a better picture of what Joseph was going through and what the birth of Christ would ultimately mean for him. So if you have your Bibles, you can open up to Matthew chapter 1. We're going to read passages 18 through 25. Matthew chapter 1, 18 through 25. It says, This is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you will give him the name Jesus, because he will save people from their sins. And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord, the prophet. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. And when Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he had no union with her until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. Now, last week, Jason talked to us about kind of the, the purpose uh, of, of the book of Matthew, right? Every gospel has a certain angle, and, Joseph, and Matthew really goes after the idea of kingship. So that's why if you study the book of Matthew, you'll notice that Matthew focuses on Joseph, while the book of Luke focuses on Mary. Uh, Matthew will trace his lineage back to just Abraham, whereas the book of Luke will go all the way back to Adam. Uh, and we also see that if you read through the book of Matthew, he has a Jewish audience in mind. So a lot of the Jewish cultural festivities often aren't as explained as they are in the other Gospels because Matthew doesn't need to do that because the Jewish audience already understands that. We also see, again, the, the whole point of the genealogy and how that works. And one of the other interesting things is Matthew will often use the phrase kingdom of heaven as opposed to using the phrase kingdom of God. If you don't know, uh, the Jewish culture uses the word God extremely in a sacred context. So if you, have, if you ever have any Jewish friends, uh, you might notice that if they ever write out the word God, they actually put G slash D. They won't actually spell it out because they consider that word so sacred. So Matthew is using that same context. Instead of referring to God, he's simply calling about the kingdom of heaven as we go through. But, but this birth is significant because the Jews are awaiting their king. They've been waiting for years and years and years, and, and now this seems to kind of be culminating to this birth, and there's a lot of excitement, right, that people are starting to sense that, is this the one, right? Is this the Christ that's going to come and save 
gave us that's going to free us from the oppression of the Gentiles and put Israel back in its proper place, to, to have the, the kingdom of David upon the throne. So that's, that's kind of where we're at with this. And so Joseph, again, is pledged to be married, uh, married to Mary, but he finds out that she's pregnant. And he's like, whoa, this is, this is problematic. And so he decides that he's going to divorce her. And the angel shows up and says, whoa, Joseph, hold on a minute. Before you do this, let me just talk through about what's going on here and about what this birth means. And I need you to really reconsider what's happening. So the angel goes through a couple of these little issues here to talk about the significance of this birth. So first off, he says, you're going to name the name Jesus. Now, Jesus was the Greek name for Joshua. Joshua was the Hebrew name for Yeshua, which simply means God is salvation or God saves. So he's saying to him, he says, listen, you're going to name him God's salvation. OK, so he's going to be the one that's going to save people from their sins. The other thing is, he then quotes Isaiah 7:14, where, again, he talks about how the Messiah will come from a virgin. And that this, this, uh, this child will be born of the Spirit. So when we look at Mary, we totally get that, right? She's, she's a virgin. She's been born of the Spirit. There's been no physical contact between her and any other man, right, to conceive of a child. And so he's just saying, look, I, I know you think this is, this is grounds for a divorce. But again, what has happened has happened by the Spirit of God, Joseph. Okay, so you need to realize that. And then in Matthew 1 through 17, he lays out the whole genealogy. And as I said, he starts with Abraham because, again, that's where, that's where the Jewish people would go back to their heritage. It begins with Abraham, the father of the Jews. And, and he, he says, remember in, in Genesis chapter 1? Remember that where, where I made a promise to Abraham that I said the whole world is going to be blessed through him and through a child? Right? This, this is the child that I'm talking about. And then he reiterates that same promise in 2 Samuel. And in 2 Samuel, he says, When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And so there he's making this promise to David. And he says, there's going to be a king that's going to come after you who will have the eternal throne. And so he says, Joseph, this is that baby that I'm talking to you about. This is the one that everybody has been waiting for. The promises that God has made in the past to his people. It's culminating with this Jesus who is to be born to you and to Mary. And one other thing here that Matthew does to try to really solidify this idea of kingship is in verse 17, he references this idea that there were 14 generations from Abraham to David, 14 from David to exile, and to Babylon, and from 14 from exile to the Christ. And so what a lot of scholars think is that this was another way that Matthew tries to highlight the kingship. Because in, 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 in uh, Hebrew, there's a way to actually number letters. And so when you spell out David, because they don't number consonants, it would be 464, which equals 14. So he's trying to make it abundantly clear here. He says, I'm telling you, Joseph, all of the promises about the one who was going to save his people is now here 
and he is going to be your child. And what I need you to do, Joseph, is I need you to play daddy. So this thought about divorcing Mary, it's not going to happen, Joseph. Okay? You need to realize that. And so Joseph considers these things. And then when it says in verse 24, when he wakes up, he does exactly what he's supposed to do. And he takes Mary home. And I I love how what's also interesting is that he says he doesn't consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son. So he basically says, I'm not going to take any credit for this child. We're going to abstain from the physical contact. And once that child's born, okay, then we'll consider that. But I don't want to take any credit that I had any part of the birth of this child. So we get a sense that Joseph is a pretty good guy here. Now, it tells us in verse 19 that says Joseph was a righteous man. Right? And I want us to really see what that means when we talk about Joseph being a righteous man. Okay? Because again, he decides that he wants to divorce her privately, right? It kind of on, on the sly and quiet, so a lot of people don't know. So, so I have to explain what it, with the Jewish marriage and how that works. So when it was time for your son to get married, what typically would happen is the father or a servant would go out, possibly the son, would go out and try to find himself a spouse. And so they would go out into the village and the, the surrounding areas, into the families, and when they would find someone, that servant or the father would actually work out a negotiation for the price of the bride, and they called that the mohar. That was the bride price, the mohar. And so they'd work out a negotiation, and when the father of the bride and the father of the groom had both agreed on what the appropriate price was, he would pay that money to the father-in-law, and then they would have a ceremony, a real quick ceremony, and now they were legally married. Okay, So when that, when that deal was done, Mary and Joseph are legally married at this point. Joseph would go back home for roughly close to a year, and he would begin to prepare his house. And so the, the, the groom or the bride would stay back with her family, and she basically would get herself ready, waiting for her groom to come back in a festive parade, come and get her, and then bring her back home to where he has built his house with his father's house. Okay? So at this point, Mary and Joseph are legally married. And the expectation is, is that the bride would keep herself pure during that year of absence, okay? And especially not with any other man, okay? So that, that was the deal that was going on. Now, if, if there was an issue with that, Deuteronomy 22 had laid out legal grounds to say what could happen in terms of somebody violating this marriage, okay? So again, they're legally married. At this point, Mary has violated that marriage, okay? So... What he could do is he could tell everybody, he could tell the elders, they could go try to figure it out, and I'm not going to get into it, but they had a way of figuring it out. And if it was found to be true that she was with someone else, they could take her out based off the laws in Deuteronomy, and they could stone her to death for violating that marriage. Now, the other thing that could happen, though, is Joseph had a right to legally divorce his, his wife and give her a certificate. Because the violation was against him. That if he chose not to go that full route, 
he could just kind of say, we're not going to kill our guys, but she's going to get the official paper, and we're going to officially divorce this. Okay? And that's what Joseph is choosing to do in this case. So he's a good man because legally he's going to do what's right. Well, she violated our marriage. The law says, you know, we shouldn't be together, and so I'm going to divorce her. And socially, relationally, he chooses to do what's right and kind of on the side divorce her that way. Okay, now this is big because not only is this most likely saving Mary from embarrassment, but this is probably saving Mary's life as well, the way that Joseph chooses to go about that. But the one thing that we don't quite see, though, is all of the cultural context of the shame that gets involved. Because Joseph is willing to forgo that when the angel tells him, and he says, I want you to take your wife home. I want you to go and get married and bring her back. And, and so what Joseph is planning on doing is extremely dangerous. This, this, for all intents and purposes, is social suicide is what Joseph is doing. Right? The fact that, one, he's going to have to be with this lady and, and, and they're going to forgo this whole idea of, of the traditional ceremony, this is big time news and Joseph is going to have to bear some of these consequences. And, and so I talked a little bit in the beginning about this idea of shame. Right? Let me just kind of dive in a little bit more of shame in the context of the Bible. So shame was, it, it's group oriented. Okay, as I said, right, that it's, it's society, it's the culture telling you that you're wrong and that you have done something wrong. Okay, uh, and so it, it's, it's an attitude where society is governed by the approval of others, right, that you are judged in the court of public appeal. Right. And, and this probably doesn't sound much different from what we have in terms of social media today. Right. That you're all proven wrong. Why? Because somebody on the Internet said so and everyone follows suit. Well, that's kind of the same thing here that socially, once you've been deemed wrong, everyone else gets on board with this. OK. And, and in terms of honor and shame, this was an ongoing state in the in the in the times of the Bible that like. Your honor was always on duty at any moment. So when you went into the marketplace, your honor could have been challenged. When you were at your home, your honor could have been challenged. When you were in a business meeting, your honor could have been challenged. And it's a zero-sum game, meaning we both can't walk away as winners. One of you will get honor, and the other one will have to end up with the shame. That was just the mentality of how it worked back then. And, and honor was such a big deal because it was all about a person's status. It was about the fame. It was about the popularity. It was about the, the, the social setting, the wealth, right? Everything who you were was wrapped up in your status of honor. And the moment that that honor was violated, you were nothing, right? You could have been up here and in the very next moment, you're down at the bottom. And so when you woke up in the morning, that was one of your first orders of business was, I have to protect my honor no matter what. Whatever happens today, if somebody's going to challenge my honor, I'm going to stand toe-to-toe -to -toe and I will defend my honor because there's no way that I'm losing my honor and there's no way my family is going to lose that honor. 
And so in terms of relationships, um, people that were honored were typically the rich, right? So if you were wealthy and had money, you were a person of honor. If you were poor, you were you were a person of shame. And so it was a big deal if you could become what they called a client, that if you could get some rich person to actually kind of attach themselves to you, because you could say, well, I know so-and-so, and they would say, you know, you know that guy? Wow, he's got a lot of money, right? And that brought you honor. Now, at the same token, if you messed up and you were the client of a rich person, you would have been gone out the door right away because there's no way they could have been associated with you. Your honor was deeply attached to your family, right? It was always kinsman versus stranger, right? You were to be loyal to your family no matter what. Because, see, the, the stranger was often kind of viewed uh, as, as morally corruptible. We don't know them. We have a distrust of them. So whatever happens with somebody I don't know, I just can't trust. But I know my family, and I have to stick with it. My, my buddy years ago went uh, to teach uh, American history over in Israel. He was actually in Jerusalem. And, and, and when he talked about some of this cultural understanding, he said, oh, it's so true. He said, first off, they all love soap operas out there in the Middle East. Right? He said, it, it's drama filled and that's just the way they are. So he said, you know, when, when you read the Bible and people like tear their shirts, he said, oh my gosh, it happens all the time. Not necessarily people tearing shirts, but something happens and people are like, oh, oh, you know, and this is big production. Well, he said the one time, he said they were at, they were at a carnival and he said somebody came up to his friend and said, hey, somebody said something about your sister. And he said the guy was irate and he was fuming. He goes, oh, I see that guy, I'm gonna kill him. And he said, we waited outside the carnival gate for two hours hours because this guy was going to fight the guy that said something about his sister. And he said the worst part was nobody said who it was or nobody even said what the guy said. So he said we're literally standing outside the gate trying to fight somebody that we have no idea who we're supposed to fight. But why was that so important? Because that man's honor and his family's honor was at stake. And men were often viewed more as honorable. And ladies, I hate to say it, you were often viewed in terms of shame. Uh, the, the women of the culture were, were often viewed to be uh, weak uh, uh, morally, physically, mentally, spiritually. You, you were always kind of seen as an inferior individual, right? So, so men were honored and women were shamed, which is a lot of times in the Bible, you know, or in culture, you know, something happens and you're like, hey, doesn't it take two people to engage in some kind of like affair? Where, where's the guy in all of this? Why is it always the woman's in trouble? Well, because she's the one who's to be shamed. Men are to be honored in that regards. And, and so... The, the strategy of public shaming was employed as a means of social control with the aim of pressuring the community to conform to the conventional values and standards of conduct. So essentially what shame does, it keeps everybody in line to the standard that culture wants to hold. Okay? And so this is what Joseph is living with. And so when Mary shows up, when Joseph finds out that Mary is pregnant, automatically the idea of honor and shame goes into the mind of Joseph. Because one, Mary has violated her marriage 
Legally, she was married and has done something wrong, so that's an aspect of shame. And now the fact that, that Joseph has this dilemma, what he needs to do is he needs to distance himself as far away as he possibly can. He needs to get away from her as soon as possible, and the best thing for his honor is to make a public declaration of what Mary has done because then that will maintain the integrity of his family. And he's going to go back to the other father and he's going to say, I want my money back for the bride price. You better pay up. And then that would have also further shamed and embarrassed Mary's family, thus bringing more honor to Joseph's family. That's, that's what should have happened. Right? That's culturally what would have went on. But again, Joseph chooses not to do that. So the fact that he's going to do this quietly is a giant risk to Joseph. This is very dangerous because people are going to say, what happened, Joseph? Why did you divorce her? Why did you what happened? What happened? And Joseph is, is going to have to play this game of, well, you know, it didn't work out and we'll just leave it at that. And so people are going to start to wonder, well, what's going on? Is there something happening with Joseph? Is Joseph's honor going to be held and at stake? But the fact when the angel shows up and makes these promises, that sense of shame no longer matters to Joseph. That sense of shame is no longer important the way that it was before this moment. And he says, you know what, I'm going to take it a step further. And instead of waiting till my house is, I'm going to go get married now and bring her back. Whoa, Joseph here, you understand what you're doing, right? Your, your wife is basically considered a harlot at this point. You're, you're not going to divorce her. You're, you're going to actually forego the Jewish traditions of how marriage works, and you're going to bring her back into your home? Joseph, this is, this is ridiculous. Nobody's going to talk to you. Nobody's going to want to do business with you. Nobody's going to want to talk to your family. Your family, Joseph, is going to have to bear this burden and this shame because you have chosen to keep Mary? But as I said, that cost that Joseph was willing to endure was so much better now of what the promise had held. Because see, when we're in Christ, it's not only our sins that he takes away, but Christ takes away our guilt and he takes away our shame. See, we can't save ourselves. We can never live up to any standard that we create, let alone live up to the standard of the holiness of God. That's why we're called sinners, because we violate what God has done. And that's the only standard that matters, guys. It's not standard of what culture says and what's posted all over the Internet. We don't have to live up to that standard. But guess what? It doesn't matter because we're all going to fail it anyway. But God, in his infinite love for us, said, I, I don't care about the honor. I don't care about the shame. What I care about is you. I care about my relationship with you. 
I, I want to bring you back into the holiness of God. And the only way that the holiness of God is found is when he sends his son Jesus to the cross. Who lays bare his blood on that cross and that covers over our sins. And he says, that, that's what I'm concerned about, Joseph. That's what I'm concerned about for you and me is that you find a right relationship in Jesus Christ. So, so when Joseph goes out and he hears the people whispering and he sees the look as he walks through the marketplace and he could see the scowls, it doesn't bother Joseph because Joseph knows there is no shame in Jesus Christ. And matter of fact, Hebrews tells us, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you would not grow weary and lose heart. That shame that Joseph had to endure was taken off with the birth of that child because it was now going to be Christ who was going to endure the shame. You know, when Jesus went to the cross, we know that is one of the most painful ways of execution. To, to be nailed up there, to, to hang, to struggle, to breathe. But one of the other things that we often miss, the cross was an embarrassment. See, Galatians 3 tells us that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole. And that came back to Deuteronomy, where it said anyone who is hung on a pole is under God's curse. Here's what we need to understand. They understood sin to be infectious. That when a person was executed for a crime, and you hung their body up on a tree to be assigned to everyone else, that was perfectly fine because it was a warning. This is what happens when you violate the law of God. But they didn't want that body to hang up there because they were fearful that that sin of that individual would infect the rest of the land. And so it was like, put it up there. Show everybody. Everybody see it. Good. Take it down. Take it down because we don't want the sin in our lives. And so when Jesus goes to the cross and he's hanging on that tree for you and me and he bears the weight and the burden of that curse of death, he is also enduring that shame. Because for the Romans, the cross oftentimes were for capital punishments and especially those that rebelled against authority. And so when Jesus comes along, they see this as a rebellion against the emperor himself. And so they hang Jesus up there, naked on the cross. And, and they, they, they skull and they sneer at him and they snicker at him and they point with disgust and disdain as he hangs up there, dying for your sins and mine. But what did Hebrews say? It was his joy to do so. It was his joy to hang up there 
for the love that he has for you and me. It was his joy to forgive us our sins and bring us back into the relationship that God always wanted for us. So when the angel says, don't be afraid, Joseph, go and get Mary. Joseph knows the joy that this child is going to bring. Because the joy of that child is going to become his joy. And so as we celebrate this holiday season, as we celebrate the birth of our Savior, Jesus Christ, I want us to be reminded of of what this birth means. Guys, you and I are sinners. We will never, ever live up to anybody's standard. You'll never live up to your parents. You'll never live up to your own. You'll never live up to societies, your friends, your family. You will never live up to the holiness of God. And so if there are aspects of our lives that we are embarrassed of, if there is something that lingers in your past that you are ashamed of, if there's something that you have tried to push to the deep recessions of your heart and you pray that that never, ever gets out and you never have anybody in this church hear about it, I want you to know it's okay because Christ took that shame from you. You don't have to live in fear and embarrassment of who you are. We are all horrible individuals that have all done wrong in this world. There is nothing better about me and there's nothing better about you. And the birth of Christ is saying, let go of the pain in your heart. Let go of the burden and the shame. I have come to forgive you and I did it on the cross. It was his joy to offer his son. It was his joy to offer his life. And it's his joy to bear our shame. So this holiday season, guys, if there is something that you're struggling with, I want you to have the freedom to talk to somebody. Because in this family, this family under the headship of Christ is a family of love and is a family of forgiveness. But Adam, you don't know what I've done. I don't know what you've done, but Christ does. And guess what? He died for you. Adam, you're you're never going to look at me the same. No, trust me, I'll look at you differently. I will. And I'll say, thank the Lord that you were willing to confess. Thank the Lord that you were willing to share and find healing. Because that's what Christ wants out of us. Christ doesn't want us to carry the burden that he says, I will take that on the cross. Let it go. So that's what Joseph did. And he found joy. And every one of us can rejoice this holiday season that our guilt and shame and sin has been forgiven now and forever. Let's pray. Father, it's... uh, It's not easy to talk about the things that we've done in our past. Lord, we often struggle with coming to you in confession. Because even before a holy God, we knowing that you've seen all, you've done all, that God, nobody wants to be a sinner.
Nobody wants to, to reveal the, the darkness of our heart. But Lord, you knew that already. And Lord, you said it doesn't matter because you love us and you care for us. May we find healing this holiday season. Lord, I, I pray for those right now, Father, that your spirit is stirring in the hearts of some who are, are, are holding on to what you don't want them to hold on to. Father, give them the courage to talk to someone, to sit down and to share that burden that they may find freedom in you. Because that's what you came to do at the cross, was to free us from our sins and to find new life and to find new joy. God, we love you. Amen.